0: Now have you find it. You turn to Paul's letters to Timothy. First letter to Timothy, you'll we'll find it at the end of Paul's letters, just before the letters of the Hebrews. First, Timothy. Lord, we pray that you will again give your word of power to you. And we pray that what we hear will be not just another sermon, but something that grips us and changes us. Lord, again, we want to take a step forward this morning that will make make us better followers and better people in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in September, we've got some plans put to adjust our program a little bit to give some room for equipping the saints, is what Ephesians 4 calls it. Training, developing gifts, leadership potential, drawing out and encouraging people to develop their contribution and their to grow as Christians. Uh, I was asked a question through a book, the kind man that wrote the book put the question in for me uh, quite recently. Are you conscious at the moment that you are growing as a Christian? Now, I don't know how you were when you first, first became a Christian, but I'm not. I, it was just the goodness of God to me, really, that I was aware of vast changes. Now, those that knew me at the time would recognize that that was very necessary. <coughs> but it's possible, isn't it? When you've been a Christian for a while, to get a little bit smug, you know enough to get by. Yes? Yeah? And your awareness of actual progress, growth, development, can plateau. I wonder if you can plateau. Honestly now, don't answer me, just answer it to yourself. Are you still steaming on, growing in grace, and in the knowledge of the Lord? Peter put it It's quite an important question, because if I plateau, I stagnate. One of the things that I need to constantly do is come go on growing. If I ever get to the place in my Christian life where I say, "Well, actually, I'm quite good now," I've lost it. And that whole area of personal growth and development is at the background to what are known as the Pastoral Epistles, one and two Timothy and Titus, and uh, these letters that Paul wrote to his friends. And over the months ahead, I'm going to preach through um, certain parts in particular of Paul's first letter to Timothy, to just look at the background of how he encouraged a young man to grow. Now, if if you just turn to the first chapter, he begins this way. He begins by introducing himself, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son, in the faith. Um, it's, the, the word he uses there for son, it, it, it better conveys the idea of child, the one that I brought forth. And uh, teacher-disciple relationships in the Greek world that Paul was writing in often had the father-son idea carried along with it. And so that Timothy is not only Paul's convert, he was certainly that, he was also Paul's apprentice. He's writing to you, you are my son that I am brought to birth and brought on to maturity. That's inherent within the whole idea of the father-son relationship. What a strange father. What a a guilty father it would be who brought his son to birth and then walked away. Fatherhood begins there, but the father-son relationship goes on much farther. And so that even though Timothy is no part of Paul's apostolic team, even though he's obviously gifted and able, he's able. He, 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 he's instructed here, commanded, urged here to stay on in Ephesus to put certain things right that are a bit dodgy there. So he's an able chap. He's qualified. He's you know he's he's got on with his ministry, and yet Paul is still in the position where he is equipping him, training him, developing him, seeking to improve. Who he is as a man, and who he is in what he does for the Lord, and that must be crucial for me. I want to learn from what is in here to see how I can go on growing. I mean, amen. I, I hope you agree with it. The two people here have seen that before. You see, one of the tragedies for Paul was that not everybody moved on that way that uh, in his second letter to Timothy, right at the end of his ministry, that he makes reference to some casualties. You have there a reference to Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10, where he talks about some of his disappointments (coughs) for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Amazia. But Demas was one of his failures, One one of those who didn't go on growing. One of his young men, men of potential, that could have got there, but he he got sidetracked, he got bogged down, he got off into bypass Meadow, or whatever it is he wanted to come. He stopped growing, he plateaued. And once he plateaued, he was in great danger of actually slipping off the plateau and ending at the bottom. And you'll also notice, if you've read Paul's letter to Timothy, Titus, to Timothy, that there are repeated references there to the whole subject of doctrine and its importance.
1: My grasp
0: of truth and truth's grasp of me. Now, when we go through, I'm going to be making particular reference to the place that Paul gives truth and doctrine as a necessary part of growth and health. Not separated from. Not to say, well, you know, you can have all that. just give me experiences. Well, experiences are fine. But there needs to be a balance between truth and grace. There needs to be a growing, as we develop in God, of our experience, keeping pace with our understanding of head and heart. Do you understand what I mean by that? That all truth and no grace and we dry up. All grace and no truth and we blow up. Right grace and right truth and we grow up. And that's the the, the background to what we have here. And so I want to bring a particular emphasis as we look through 1 Timothy in those kind of areas. Because you see, Paul is writing here to his friend, Timothy, my son. But it's not a chatty letter, is it? It's not a kind of news update. You know, those kind of prayer letters that you read the first paragraph and put down because it's just saying about the you car and you know, what the dog had for Christmas. And... It's not like that. It doesn't come across with that kind of weight. It's, it's a very serious letter. There's something here that he's very, very keen to say. It's crucial for Timothy that he grasps the importance of what he wants to convey to him. So let's look at two aspects of, the, of what, where doctrine has a part to play for us. Uh, we'll read from verse 3, or well, let's read from the top again, so we're going to do context. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Saviour, and the hope of Christ Jesus our hope, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to default themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of of this command is love, which comes out of a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about, or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good. If one uses it properly, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. For those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers, for perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers. What a lovely breed And for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. First of all, in verses 3 to 7, are doctrines positive effects? Now, there is a problem in this That... Uh, Knowledge has been separated from behaviour, basically. And a kind of speculative, intellectual, mystical learning had come in. Now, there was in the early church, uh, about 50 years later, a heresy known as Gnosticism, where the Gnostics, with all their secret knowledge, it was what you might call a kind of game of spiritual snakes and ladders. If you play snakes and ladders, that every little bit of this fascinating, deep truth that you could learn and imbibe took you up a step on the ladder. And if you didn't learn them, it was like, if, if you forgot some of these deeper mysteries, it was like treading on a snake. So that there were a series of heavens, and by grasping these great mysteries, hadn't anything to do with behavior. Hadn't got anything to do with a personal relationship with Jesus. Hadn't got anything to do with the Holy Spirit. It was all about understanding these wonderful mysteries. next And Paul has to write to Timothy to say, tell him to stop it. Myths and endless genealogies. Tell to cut it out. Quite a strong message. A wrong use of theory, and their motives, he called into question as well, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about, or what they so confidently affirm, Not letting anybody in any doubt as to what he thinks about the whole thing, that uh, as far as Paul is concerned, they just want to have the status. They want to feel good by influencing people. They, they want to dominate people by their theories, and make people dependent on them, so that they can have all these great truths that they want to... Pass on to them and feel good and let their egos develop. Great danger for teachers. It's really emphasis without balance. And it's a great danger for us. To think that we can have truth without that doesn't affect behaviour. To think that Christian doctrine it's something that I can have like a university degree. That God wants me to be clever. Doctrine is not like that. Never has been. Truth is never meant to make me clever. Truth is there to make me free. And to make me change. And to make me better. That's what the word of God has been given to us for. And uh, it's, it's so easy, isn't it, to, to kind of settle into a sidetrack. I not know quite what our favourite sidetracks are, but I've met some people who, who were specialists. I met one man whose life was, a, was a, a tragic disaster, whose first marriage failed, even though he was at that time the pastor of a church. And I can remember talking to him, and he said these words to me. We were talking about the second coming, and that this would happen, and then this would happen. I don't think he ever fixed a date. <laughs> But, you know, it was all pie in the sky it was all complicated mystical theory and he turned and said David I've spent 20 years researching this and I thought you oh, fish spending 20 years down a blind alley that he could never ever derive any significant character improvement from at all. What a tragedy. And you know, we can be experts at Christians, as Christians, and our lives be unaffected. Isn't it awful? Have you ever met the experts on the gifts of the Spirit, more oh, the gifts of the Spirit, that are this, this, this and this, and that their lives are not credible? Isn't that awful? Isn't it a tragedy? that we can have all the right ideas, and yet fail to have that transposed into practice. We're good at it all. Way, if only my heart and life is as good as my theory. The problem was here in Corinth that they had officially dis, dis, uh, in Ephesus had separated the two. They'd become one issue men. That. They, they, they love to have things to argue about. And we can, can't come. I once knew of a man who committed adultery and argued with his mistress about the deity of Christ when he was with her. It's not bloody hard. How could anyone argue theology in a position because of this? Because truth isn't truth until it grips me. I don't know it until, I I know it not when I've got it but when it's got me. Can you see that? Because it's crucial to understand that. Now you see, what um, Paul goes on to say here in in this command he he uses the word three times in verse 1 that he has been commanded by God. And then in verse 3 he says commandment I command you. And then in verse 5, he specifies what this command is. Now, where is it that truth is meant to get me? If I need to grow, and if a right understanding of God and his ways and his works is essential for my growth, how do I translate my knowledge into the goal? Or well, what's the goal, first of all? Verse 5. The goal of this command is love. So, in my growth as a Christian, in my development, in where God is wanting to get me, whatever stage I'm at, whether I'm 6 or 60, whether you're an infant or an elder, or whatever, wherever you're at, the goal, of the growth that God wants to move you into is characterized with this, this word that, that so well describes Jesus as agape, love, sacrificial giving, concern, and grace to other people. Now, how does love grow in my heart? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why am I such a horrible person? Then only oh, I was Says lovely... Hell, no, this is <laughs> how does love grow? In verse 5 is the first lesson of growing <clears throat> as a Christian. It's there, it's clear as crystal. If you want to know how to become a lovely person, verse 5 tells you the necessary steps and qualifications to make it. If you want to grow as a Christian, if you've plateaued, the answer to why you've plateaued may well be in verse 5. It's so clear. Truth has been given to us. The command goal is that we become people characterized by love, how am I going to get there? How am I going to grow? What is the nursery bed? Are you planting your seeds at the moment? What, if, what spiritual Levingtons? Is it Levingtons or? What do you use? <laughs> <laughs> what has got to be in the Christian seed bed if truth is going to grow into life? There are three things. This clearly pointedly specified. Let me read it again. The goal of this command is love, which comes from one—a pure heart. If my heart is not pure, I will not grow. There are Christians who have come to a full stop because their heart is not pure. Is that true? To <laughs> them experience tells me that that word is Amen the times when my heart is compromised are the times I simply stop growing dead my heart is the centre of my personality It's it's the fulcrum of faith and feeling it's the mainspring of my heart and actions Proverbs 4 23 say so that out of, out of my heart comes me. And in my heart is your spiritual, so will not grow. So I need to take attention to my heart. I need to make sure that things like bitterness and greed and selfishness, and, that, that the blood of Christ is cleansing, has cleansed, and goes on clean. I need to keep a clean heart. But then there's a second thing. Clear conscience. Doesn't guilt buckle you up? If there's something lagging you an unresolved, doesn't guilt put the brakes on spiritually? Doesn't it? That the times, you know, when you're a new Christian, what is the, the prominent experience of, of when you become a Christian for the first time and you're born again, you believe in Jesus personally and the Holy Spirit comes into your heart. What is the primary experience? Forgiveness. And the, I remember walking away when I was first converted and so a whole load had gone off my back. And it was new! I thought, I'm never going to sin again! That uh, was for a day or two, anyway. Uh, that there was a freshness, new birth. When I was baptized in the Spirit, new life surging about my being. But once my, once I have an evil conscience, once there's something which I know is wrong, but I don't put away <laughs> on both grounds. Uh, it's here, but it's also it's, it's life, isn't it? That I go as far with God as I'm prepared to do by having a clear conscience. Paul in the Acts of the Apostles wrote those words: "I, I seek always to have a clear conscience toward God and toward men." Acts twenty-four sixteen. And we need to be so careful. I need to be. So I reading this morning in Leviticus. Great stuff. About the sacrifices for the sins of omission. And the things we found out that we're guilty about, we didn't even know we'd done, that they were wrong when we did them. And how careful we need to be to keep it clear. Not introspective, not kind of guilt-ridden, walking. Jesus forgives sins and clears the debt. If I will repent of sin, turn from it, and ask for forgiveness, he makes me as clean as clean. And my guilt and record is gone. There's no record of it in heaven, and there needs to be no record of it here. I'm I'm forgiven. But if I don't let go of the sin, if I don't turn from it, the guilt is there and it's like a a constrictor right around my spiritual growth. That's the second one. The third one, again at the end of verse five a good conscience and a sincere faith. No. No No, hypocrisy. No pretending on a Sunday morning. No being more spiritual when I'm stood up here than I am when I'm slaving at the kitchen sink. (laughs) No masks. No pretense. Genuine, sincere faith. How important. That people see me the same at work or at school that they see me on a Sunday morning. You see, if there's inconsistency there, it's it crippling. Isn't it? Isn't it good to be you, playing on spiritual you but growing, <coughs> rather than super spiritual you, who because of the hypocrisy has stopped growing long term? You see, really what Paul is getting at here is the kind of hairy-fairy super spirituality that is not. Practical doesn't work in real life situations. Spirituality without practicality. Ooh, I did end <coughs> and here at, at the end of verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently ass- assert that they need to be sound in the faith. And we do. The word that's used there in the second half of verse 4 these promote controversies rather than God's work which is by faith. The word there for God's work is is God's management God's administration It's the word that's often used for stewardship
1: God's way
0: of doing things is not spiritual hair fairy, mystical Unrelated to life. God's way of doing things is truth, related through faith. Yes? And walked in. Theology is an interest and a love and a delight and a longing in God. A wanting to know Him. Wanting to know about loving things that concern Him. Truth, doctrine, teaching. Is it not true, and sadly true for many of us? When we were first converted, you remember when you were first a believer and you wanted to understand it all, Yeah? And you read it avidly. And you discovered that there were crystal books too. Good books. They weren't boring. They were even paperbacks. And you read those. Yeah? And that desire to learn and grasp it and let it grasp, and sadly so often, as Christians, we, get, we begin to wane in our zeal to go on in the knowledge of the Lord. Don't you? I do. So do you. <laughs> and so I command you. Yes, I command you to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, to give higher priority in place to truth and doctrine so that our experiences will have a good framework and balance, so we can test that that which is true and that which is false. Then, secondly, in the verses 8 down to verse 11, those are the positive aspects of the, the qualities that truth will produce in us. But Paul also deals with some of the negative aspects. You see, if I can take you back to the problem, that they thought that they could have experience and behavior that was unrelated to truth. They actually started to despise the law and said that the law was really of no relevance to a Christian. A Christian didn't need the law anymore. A Christian could basically do what he wants. Could be very liberal, liberty, liberty trendy, indulgent, sensual 20th century Britain. Do what you <clears> like. like. Love God. Well, Augustine said that. I don't know. But really, believe what you like but do what you want. And Paul is making it absolutely clear that that simply is not. That uh, the law stands and he starts to enumerate a few of the bits in the list, aren't they? We know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Look at that for Christians. That's interesting, isn't it? For lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, well, the, the idea behind that is for those who are violent, strike their father and mothers, or, or worse. For murderers, for adulterers, for perverts. Think what the authorised version, them that defile them, men that defile themselves with men. Homosexuality is clearly described in scripture. No way. And uh, God has forbidden it, condemned it, said it to be utterly, utterly wrong. No question. And Paul is saying that the law is there. That it's not something that we can dispense with. It's something that we've got to abide with. The law stands. That for this type of behavior, for a Christian, no way. No way. And saying that if your theory, your speculation says that you can believe in God and do what you like, well, you've got to wrong. The law's good if it's used properly. And we need to use it properly. But going on from there, isn't it strange how Paul's mind works? Because the next phrase doesn't really fit, does it? He's going down this horrible list for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders. I'm not the 20th century equivalent of that? Isn't it? And liars and perjurers. But look at the end of verse 10. And for whatever else, is contrary to sound doctrine. What a strange thing to say. Or is it? Is it possible that slave trading is contrary to sound doctrine? Because slave trading involves man's inhumanity to man. And therefore is contrary to sound doctrine. Is it possible that adultery... Is contrary to sound doctrine because God is holy. Is it possible that homosexuality is contrary to sound doctrine because man made God made man and woman and established families and the order of humanity? Of course it is. Isn't it interesting that here Paul says that all wrong behaviour is not contrary to wrong morality? It's contrary to wrong theology. The problem of the person whose behavior is wrong is not just that their morality is wrong, it's that their view is wrong. Their understanding of truth is wrong. Their grasp of God is wrong. God's grasp of them through truth is wrong. Isn't that fascinating? When you find that that, interesting, isn't it? That there's a direct relationship, according to Paul, between what I believe and what I do. And Christian, you need to grow in what you know, so that what you do will keep pace and change with it. Fascinating. The two have to go together. There must be a balance between the two. And I was again, in the the book that I was reading, in relation to 1 Timothy, quite a Bible study question um, book, That uh, right at the end, having read 2 Timothy, where in 2 Timothy Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for reproof and for correction and training in righteousness, that a man of God may stand mature, equipped for every good work. And the question that the man asked me, having read that, what influence do you think scripture had on Timothy's life? And pointing back to some of the verses that had gone before about how he was taught the faith from his grandmother Lois. Remember right at the beginning of 2 Timothy 1. And the references shot through in relation to Timothy of the place that the scripture had. Now we looked at this a few months ago. I hope the word of God hasn't been put back under the dust on the shelf. I hope that what we looked at and talked about in house group That we are growing as a people of the word. Because it was the the word that made Timothy what he was. Wasn't it? Sure it was. For soundness and health and balance and growth. Truth must grip me. Hope you've understood that. But the other thing which I, I think stands out, certainly stands out, in the original, but it also comes across here. Now, let me read again the, the passage that we've, we have before us. Paul, an apostle, beneficial. He's got something serious to say, but that was what apostles were for, really, wasn't it? That one of their jobs was not to define truth, but to clarify it. And and to distinguish between truth and error from the standard of God's word that had been given. We read of the Apostles' Doctrine, or the faith once for all delivered to the saints, yes? That uh, the gospel that has been entrusted to me, there was a standard of truth. And part of apostolic ministry was to order and to test what was being said against that truth to make sure that the truth was not undermined. And so that Paul's writing to his friend Tim, and he's starting a bit serious because he has serious things to say. To Timothy, my true son, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. A typical first century Greek correspondence beginning with that kind of introduction. Verses one and two. Verse three, boom, Stringberg. Now kind of how no are you? things how's it, how's it, straight in. Do you know, he doesn't even finish the sentence. It doesn't come across that way, but in the Greek, the grammar is incomplete. He doesn't even finish the sentence. He, he gets halfway through and, as I urged to do when I went into Macedonia, stay in There's trouble there. There's heresy. They're teaching things that don't affect behavior. Command them to stop it. But, but in the flow, the urgency of it is upon the man. It's crucial that if I don't get truth straight, my life will not work, and it is so urgent about it. I can remember Jonathan, our friend from Wales, his father telling him one, on one occasion when he was at um, in Port Talbot, listening to Martin Lloyd Jones before he moved to Westminster Chapel. Um, well it was when, he, when the doctor was at, at Port Talbot, but he, he was in Wales in the in the chapel. That they, in the big preaching meetings, it was often the practice of what was called a double header. You know what? If you anything about steam trains, if you had a great invite to get a train up there you had a double head, two trains on the front, well, they called these great preaching occasions double headers because you had two sons actually preached at one. The, the decent preacher is put on second and the kind of fill in, like the film, they put that on. Well, I, I preached first. <laughs> and uh, that. Martin Lloyd Jones was on second, and I can remember Jonathan's father saying, "This fellow preached heresy, liberal nonsense." If there wasn't much that this first preacher didn't deny by the time he'd finished, and he said, "Lloyd Jones, as soon as the man sat down, ran up the steps, <laughs> grabbed the Bible, and started preaching for all he was worth because he was so angry." Urgent. The the truth mattered. He ran up the steps. He couldn't get there quick enough to put right the wrong that had just been put. And there's something of that here, isn't there? Timothy, command them to stop it. Because truth is crucially important. What I believe, really, what has gripped me, will change me. And so that it's urgent that the correction is made in verse 11 that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted for me. The gospel must be kept pure and simple. The gospel that says that God is holy and that I have sinned against him and that my sin will condemn me but that Jesus came to bear the consequences of my sin in his own body that I might be forgiven if through repentance and faith I take a personal interest in the death of Jesus, and if I yield my life to him and he comes into my heart and changes me and becomes Lord in my life by his Spirit indwelling, that in that way this blessed gospel can take hold of me. How important if it's my sin, God's love, Jesus' sacrifice, a new birth, a new beginning in my heart, Keep myths and genealogies and arguments. Keep it away. Keep the gospel pure and simple. And Paul is contending for that, and it's so important that he does. But then, going back to Timothy, and I'm close. The whole question of the hope, as mentioned at the beginning, that Jesus has the answer to get us going. That I may feel it feel that I've been dragging my feet and treading water, or whatever analogy you want to make, for a long, long time, and I'm simply not growing. I might try to impress you and you know, make it look as if, boy spiritual and really child, but actually deep down, I know I'm not. I've stopped for one reason or another. He begins the letter by Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, in Christ Jesus are We can't change. Jesus can make us new again. That, that He said himself that we will know the truth and the truth will make us free. Truth about God will make me free. Truth about his fatherhood will make me free. Truth about myself and my sin and my need of repentance <coughs> and my need of personal commitment to God will make me free. Truth about his, truth about his words and about morality and purity. Truth about my the, the, the framework of my own sexuality will make me free. There's hope. But <laughs> you know, I'm to Divine presence. Thank you for how interested you are in us. We thank you that you have taken such trouble to reach us. Thank you for so many others who come to a personal conversion and new birth, and the fullness of the Spirit, and your leading and protection and provision in our lives, Lord, deeply grateful. But we want to go on. We know that we don't go on as a church unless we go on as individuals. And Lord, some of us are young people and we're in danger of being like Demas who loved his world as just ensnared and blinded. And Lord, we say, will you please let your truth take us on? Just pause there for a moment and speak quietly and the heart the Lord. If that's true for you, if you need to go and start the growing again, just tell it kind of just in your heart. And I'll be praying that you will cause truth to us and change it.